0: And while you're getting situated, if you would turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the passage this morning that Peter read, Exodus chapter 4. As we're going through the Exodus in the way that we are, you may sometimes have that feeling that I saw with a young lady this morning when Exodus chapter 4... She looked up at her daddy. and goes, (laughs) whew. And uh, there's a lot of stuff in here. You ought to try preaching it. (laughs) But uh, I hope that we still gain much from these scriptures and that you're perhaps encouraged to go back and dig deeper. And I know some of these things that I've studied, I want to come back and do sermons particularly on some of these specific uh, items that we're going to look at this morning. Please turn with me, if you would, in Exodus chapter 3 to verse 9. And as often, I think it's important that we get a little bit of the background and the context and we move into the scripture this morning. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. And I forgot to make an announcement. Next Sunday we will be having communion. So uh, come next ready with your hearts prepared. to come before the Lord in that special time that we have to remember His his death, His burial, and His resurrection for our sake. So communion next Sunday. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. This is Yahweh speaking. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever And this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her, her who dwells near her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. We see the questions coming up in the mind of Moses. Remember as someone mentioned this morning I think in prayer this fellow was so insignificant he was not the big time shepherd of Midian he was actually a hired hand he was working for his father-in-law the sheep did not belong to him and he was in this desert and he's going to the backside of this mountain minding his own business essentially after 40 years being a shepherd why? Why would he be the one? that's what he asks he says who am I? And, and whose authority do I carry? How has God answered each of those questions? As we looked last week, and we will see this morning, God regularly brings him back and says, Moses, this mission that I have called you to is about me, not you. I will be with you. I am Yahweh, the eternal sovereign creator. I will devastate those Egyptians. I'll devastate them to the point that they will beg you to leave. And it will be not your warriors, it will be your wives and your children that will carry away the plunder. That's how devastating I will be to them. What great comfort. Wouldn't that just give you such confidence? Uh, What promise, fantastic promise. But Moses is not even close to ready for this mission. He has no desire to go Egypt. His objections reveal two missing elements required before he or any of us enters a venture with God. Two elements, faith and obedience. We will see those over and over this morning. Moses' faith will be what propels his obedience And this morning we're going to look at a lot of different things here as you can imagine. We're going to look at his first question. What if they don't believe me? The second question, or objection, I don't believe I have what it takes. The third, I don't believe I'm the one. Then we'll see believing enough to go and then believing enough to begin. But we're going to look at some things here that are, are deep. We're going to look at this idea of the hardening of the heart. If you think about that very long, it becomes a little bit of a challenge. If God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, then who is responsible for Pharaoh's sin? And then we're going to look briefly, and as I would said earlier, this, these could be sermons in each isolated instance, but we're going to look at this bizarre event that happens on the way to Egypt. Don't be afraid to look at that and just say, "What is going on here?" But we're going to try to dig, and I think it'll make some sense. We're going to look at that because we're going to look at the hardness of the heart, and we're going to look at the dangerous, lethal risk of unbelief. But before we do that, let's ask God to bless us and lead us this morning. Father, we come to your word this morning, and we beg you to teach us and reveal to us who you are. Lord, I I know that there are so many competing and and confusing and uh, just clutter in our minds and hearts, even things that have happened this morning right here that can distract us from you. Father, please pierce through the hard shells around our minds and our hearts and help us to understand. Help us to see you. Lord, those who are here this morning that are are heavily burdened by struggles and relationships or finances or their work or whatever it might be Lord please help us to see you and to know you and may you impact every piece of our life Lord there's so much here and uh, I pray that you would would give us a taste of who you are in your name we pray amen now look carefully at verse 1 in chapter 4 and think in your mind what is it that Moses really fears Verse 1, then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. What if they don't believe me? Or suppose they don't believe me, or in other words, Yahweh, have you considered the possibility that they may not listen to me? God has not considered that contingency. Why? Because there are no contingencies with God. God knows and has determined what will happen. Besides that, if you remember what we read just this morning in verse 18 of chapter 3, Yahweh already told Moses, they will listen to your voice. They will heed your voice. This, this idea of belief, the Hebrew word for belief is aman. And it's used five times, In these first nine verses. So we know it is important. Clearly this is a crisis of unbelief. But it's not a crisis of unbelief for Israel. Like Moses puts forth. In fact Israel has no idea. About this Exodus mission. They haven't had a chance. Not to believe. So who is it that is really unbelieving? It is Moses. He will not believe Yahweh at his word. Yet ever so patiently, the Lord responds and gives Moses here three signs of power through which both he and Israel will be convinced. Verse 2, so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod or a staff. we are going to see some power over the serpent. Verse 3. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. He fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. It's a very specific sign that's being given here. The reason is so Israel will believe that the Lord has really appeared to Moses, that he's not there putting on some sort of a charade or wanting to get a bunch of people behind him. They will know that God truly had appeared to him. You see, in Egypt, the serpent represented wisdom, fertility, and healing. The symbolic cobra with its raised hood ready to strike adorned the king's crowns and his scepters. Yahweh's power to create a revered serpent out of a wooden pole and then uncreate it right back. It would obviously show a power over nature, wouldn't it? But it would show much more. It would show a power over the political and spiritual powers of Egypt. Furthermore, verse 6, The Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. I want you to think about that. What would, be, what would you think if you stuck your hand inside of your coat or inside of your shirt and then pulled it out and all of a sudden it was completely diseased suddenly out of nowhere. And then you stick it back in as commanded and you pull it out and it's clean. It's clean. How, how can we grasp these things? But try, look at what's going on here. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in the bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign that they may believe the message of the latter sign. This is a power over leprosy. And, and I will admit to you, there's many different ways people interpret these signs. These signs. But I think there's real significance to look at the context and the culture and people that he was going to. You see, leprosy was everywhere in Egypt, and it was uncurable. It was a dreaded disease. Yet Moses not only could inflict himself in a way, he could also completely heal that dreaded disease, which nobody could cure. Verse 9, and it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. And I I noticed in the ESV, as Peter read this morning, it says the Nile River. When it says the river, it's kind of like, you know, the river, the Nile River. And that's what we're talking about here. The Nile River, it is the very lifeblood of Egypt. One source points out that the Nile Basin received as much as 30 feet of mud in the river's annual inundation, making it the black land in contrast to the red land of the surrounding desert. Every year the Nile waters washed, cleansed, renewed, then increased Egypt's soil. And they were the reason for Egypt's famed fertility, and so her great wealth and power. To threaten and destroy the Nile was to destroy Egypt itself. And this, too, the Lord showed he could do. And if, and if we had a map that shows, uh, I don't even remember what you call these maps, maybe you all do, but it shows sort of the growth and the vegetation uh, from a high elevation like a, tele, a satellite vision. If you were to look at those and you would look at the Nile Delta as the Nile pours its way into the ocean, all that surrounding area is lush, dark green. And you get a little ways away from that delta and it becomes parched, yellow and red. The Nile was the lifeblood of that area. Lifeblood. What does Moses have the power to do? We will see in some of the plagues that come, that river will become dead at different periods of time. Three signs. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue." Some of us can identify with that. I sense that in my speech oftentimes. But Moses is saying, I don't believe I have what it takes. I'm not eloquent. Literal literal translation of that is, I'm not a man of words. I'm not a word man. I have a hard, heavy mouth and a hard, heavy tongue. One commentator said, he was unable to articulate his thoughts in fluent, flowing speech. That's what he's saying. You see, sophisticated speech was highly esteemed in Egypt. Moses would have known this well. He himself had received training in oratory throughout his first 40 years of life in the king's palace. Where are his eyes? His eyes are fixed squarely upon himself and he maintains, I do not have what it takes. I would be no match for Pharaoh and his eloquent officials. In making his point, And if you look at it carefully, Moses also gives a shade of disrespect towards God. As he did in verse 1 when he questioned if Yahweh had ever considered that the people might listen to him. In this objection, Moses insinuates that maybe God hadn't noticed that he has a speech problem. Quote, I'm not eloquent neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. In other words, Yahweh, things haven't changed just because you started talking with me. And on top of that, as Moses makes this retort toward God, he calls him Adonai, the Sovereign, rather than Yahweh, the name that had just been given to him minutes earlier. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, I want you to stop and I want you to read verse 11 very carefully. In verse 1, Yahweh responds to Moses' doubt about being believing. By giving him three convincing signs. Now Yahweh gives four literal examples. Of his creative power in man. And look at these examples. First of all. He's the creator of all things. God points out to him. I created the very organ. Which you are using as an excuse. But then what do you notice. In the four examples that follow. God made the speaking mouth. But also the mute mouth. He made the deaf ear that cannot hear. He not only created the eye with 20-20 vision, but also the blind who cannot even discern night from day. What is his point? His point is neither ability nor disability hinder God's work. He has used countless men and women as his ambassadors who were blind, mute, mute, Paralyzed, afflicted with cerebral palsy, speech impediments, strokes, physical disfigurement. In many of these lives, the power of Christ is even more brilliantly displayed. Think of Fanny Crosby. I, I looked up into anywhere from 5,000 to 8,000 hymns that blind woman wrote. Think of Johnny Erickson Tata, paralyzed at the age of 17 from the neck down. She has written books. She has composed songs. She has gone all over the world and encouraged many, probably hundreds of thousands. She's supplied tens of thousands of wheelchairs to people all over the world. She has camps where families with with children with disabilities come and receive, receive refreshment and encouragement. A fellow by the name of David Ring I don't know if you've heard of him. He he has cerebral palsy. He has had it all of his life. At the age of 14, he was orphaned. His life was a mess. And at 17, he came to Christ. And God touched that man and his ability to share the gospel is amazing. I've heard him speak several times. And and one of his key comments is, I have cerebral palsy. What's your problem? Or what's your excuse? I even would... I talked with my brother Adam this morning and we talked about how God has used him just in this last week in opportunity to share about Christ and how he has looked about on his own life of what God has done in him. Thank you, brother. Ability and disability have nothing to do with whether God will use you. Again, the Lord brings Moses back to the basics. This mission I am calling you to, Moses, is not about your abilities or your disabilities. It is about my power and glory. Verse 12, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Notice what he doesn't tell Moses. He doesn't say, well, I will give you the eloquence you need or or, I will give you persuasive speech. But rather, he says, I will be with your mouth. And remember that word with. It's so important of what we've been talking about. It's not just being in proximity to. It's being completely involved, immersed. I will be with you in every aspect. And I will be with you, your mouth. I will cause it to speak. I will lead you in what to say. And I will teach See, Moses was not the only man in the Bible who apparently had a speech problem. Consider the most prolific writer of the New Testament who was also one of its greatest evangelists, the Apostle Paul. He wrote to the church in Corinth saying, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And those are factual about Paul in those moments. He's not just saying that to give a false sense of humility. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is what is going on here. Moses is not to gain the affection and the following of the people. That is the last thing that God wants. He wants them, as Paul wrote, not to have faith in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The speech problem may have seemed like a legitimate disqualification to Moses, but the creator of the universe knew it was only a lack of faith. So go. But he said, Oh Lord, Oh my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. I don't believe I'm the one. After all this, Moses holds on to unbelief that almost here leads to desertion. A literal literal translation of that statement of his is, Oh, Lord, please send by the hand of whom you will send. Or, now send the message by whomever you will. One writer paraphrases, he says, Oh, have it your own way. Do what you want. It is as if Moses, after all of God's patient and gracious assurances, as well as the magnificent promises, still will not believe and absolutely will not obey verse 14 so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses now this is not just he's a little bit upset that word is the word it's a Hebrew word which means wrath it stems from another Hebrew word meaning enraged the Lord is fully justified in this wrath yet what does he do This is amazing. In faithful patience, he does not instantly incinerate the unfaithful man, nor does he condemn him to another 40 years in the desert. He doesn't even drop him to the side and go find someone else. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. Out of this objection, there really is created a metaphor. If one wonders if Moses' lack of faith was a surprising hurdle that God would have to get over, look at this verse. What has happened? Yahweh has already dispatched Moses' brother Aaron out of Egypt to meet him at Horeb before this objection had even come up. God has foreseen every objection and insecurity of Moses, of Kent, of Paul, of Matt, of Brent, of Anne. He has seen every objection and insecurity before he ever began to work in Moses or in us. Macho writes, Aaron is not a miraculous divine intervention, but a provision long since prepared with the necessary gifts and now emerging from the shadows by divine prompting. This Moses-Aaron relationship was preordained by God in order to show Israel and Pharaoh the greater relationship between God and his prophet Moses. God will speak to Moses and tell him what to say. Then Moses will speak to Aaron And Aaron will speak to the people. With Aaron in place, we see that now God has equipped Moses with two essential tools for his mission. The mouth and the rod. Verse 16. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you. And you shall be to him as God. And verse 17. And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. As a result of God's wise and patient responses, the equipping with the rod of God, and the addition of the mouth of Aaron, Moses now takes his first step of obedient faith. Praise God, it's almost like, finally, let's go. So Moses went, and he returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey. Then he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. He is believing enough at this point to go. And here are his steps for departure. With courteous respect to a man he owes a great deal Moses returns to the estate of his father-in-law. He then communicates his intentions. Now exactly how much of his meeting with God Moses shares with Jethro is not known. Most of the detail appears to have been omitted. After all the Lord had told him what to say to the elders of Israel and had told him what to say to Pharaoh, but he didn't tell him what to say to Jethro. So he goes back, and Jethro has been such a a great foundation for him in many ways. His wife he owes to Jethro, one of his daughters. His occupation, shepherding, has been brought about by Jethro. So with respect he goes back and he says, I'm going to head back so Yahweh then reiterates his command to go. And he says, give a measure. And then he gives a measure of confidence and tells Moses that the guys who are seeking to kill you, your nemesis, are all dead now. So Moses packs up the family and he departs. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, this is the first time in Exodus that Yahweh states that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. We will see it many times as we go through the plagues. The result of that hardened heart is that Pharaoh would not concede to Moses and let the Israelites go. In other words, Pharaoh would not obey God. This hardening of Pharaoh's heart plays a huge role in the Exodus account, you will read that God is not the only one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. On several occasions, Pharaoh hardens his own heart in response to Moses. One source stated that God hardened Pharaoh's heart ten times and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart ten times. A, a different source shows Yahweh hardening Pharaoh's heart six times, Pharaoh doing so himself three times and then factually that Pharaoh's heart was simply hardened seven times, and that Yahweh declared he will harden Pharaoh's heart three times. So the hardening of the heart, if you don't get it yet, that's going to be a significant part of what goes on here. So what do we do with that? This very quickly raises the question in our minds, first of all, who is responsible? If God hardens Pharaoh's heart not to obey, then there's no way he could obey. But it is also true that if Pharaoh hardens his own heart with complete freedom to do whatever he wills, why would he harden it every time? And if he had freely chosen not to harden his heart and been a big soft-hearted teddy bear, would he then have had a national going-away party with a parade for Israel as they left town? God could have dispensed with all those nasty plagues, especially the final one that led to the death of every firstborn son in the Passover of the Jews. So how do we make sense of this God-hardening and Pharaoh-hardening of his heart? The word which seems to be best suit here is the word antinomy. Many of you may already be familiar with an antinomy, but I first ran across it in J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Could you bring that PowerPoint slide up? This is a, a bit of a long definition, so it may be hard to read, so I'm going to read it through. And th- this is really important. He defines Antinomy as the appearance of contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. It is an apparent, apparent incompatibility between two apparent truths, An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are cogent reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid evidence, but it is a mystery to you how they can be squared with each other. You see that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. Such a necessity scandalizes our tiny, tidy minds, no doubt, but there is no hope for it if we are to be loyal to the facts. Such a necessity scandalizes our tidy minds, no doubt, but there is no help for it if we are to be loyal to the facts. End quote. The Lord knew that we humans would have a hard time understanding these things. For that reason... He gave us a New Testament defense of God's justice in this specific antinomy. Paul specifically cites this Old Testament hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 26. And I'm so grateful that Paul would bring this under the inspiration of God to help us grasp this. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, and here he is going back, Paul, to the Exodus. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Well, you will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called? Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And I want to get this last few verses in here as well, because they are so precious. And he, God says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God." We may struggle, we will struggle, making this all fit and come in, in, in full clarity. But the beauty of this is God has chosen those of us who had no reason to be chosen, only condemnation. And in His perfect sovereign will has elected us to be His children. Pharaoh, he has chosen for a different purpose. Moses was chosen for a different purpose. As one writer describes, the Apostle Paul used this hardening as an example of God's inscrutable will and absolute power to intervene as he chooses. Yet obviously never without loss of personal responsibility for actions taken. We will look at this truth, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, several times over the next few months. And I hope we will grasp more and more of it and yet in some ways we will look at it and be astounded. In spite of Pharaoh's hostility, Moses is commanded to declare to Pharaoh that Israel is Yahweh's firstborn son. This is the first time in the scriptures that Israel is called my firstborn son. You see, the firstborn son was special and sacred to the Egyptians as well. The firstborn son of the Pharaoh would have had the highest value of any person in the land. But Israel is God's dearest child. If you will not free my son, says Yahweh, I will kill yours. Now that is, that is hard. That is direct. That is extremely blunt. But from the very first encounter, God lets Pharaoh know how serious this could become. We are not playing games, Pharaoh. Pharaoh. I will tell you how much this will cost you. But then, right on the heels of that, comes this almost deadly risk to Moses. Verse 24, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Now there are some that would say that the pronouns here may have pointed to Moses' son, but, but the vast majority, and it seems like from what I'm reading, that it must be Moses himself. What significant names, as we look at this, I want to ask you, what significant names have been repeated over and over again since we first began these first few chapters of Exodus? What are they? They've appeared five times already. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes. Why? Because Moses is being reminded by Yahweh that the deliverance from Egypt is not some sudden intervention of God feeling sorry for Israel. The Exodus was already announced back when there was no such thing as an Israel, when there was only a man, Abram. Let's look briefly at that history in Genesis. And this is crucial. You may think, well, this is really going to drag out. This is so important. If you don't understand the next few minutes of God's history with the Jews, then verses 24 through 26 will look like some sort of a warped over the top traditionalism from God or some bizarre surprise with a really violent twist. It's neither of those. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 7. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Moses and Abraham have so so much in common. Abram was a nobody. He was being raised in Ur of the Chaldees by parents who were idolaters. Why? Why Abram? I don't know. But that's who God chose. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran and they departed to go to the land of Canaan so they came to the land of Canaan and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh and the Can- Canaanites were then in the land then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God promised Abram, I will make you a great nation, a great name. I will bless, make you a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And if people curse you, I will curse them. Then go to Genesis chapter 13, beginning at verse 12. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent, even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever." and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth then your descendants also could be numbered arise walk in the land through its length and its width for I give it to you these promises God is lavishly giving to Abram what does that have to do with what happened on the way to Egypt we'll get there Genesis chapter 15 verse 4 And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. God is speaking to Abram. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. So he's promising descendants. Now he's promising a land, a nation. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now zero in on verse 9. So Yahweh said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, excuse me, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in two and when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward and they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river the river Euphrates the Kenites the Canazites the Cadmonites, the Hittites the Perizzites the Rephaim the Amorites the Canaanites the Girgashites and the Jebusites. God conducted this elaborate covenant ceremony all of God Abraham what do we see had a vision essentially was sleep horror came upon him and God made this wonderful fabulous unbreakable covenant with the man Abram one more search here Genesis chapter 17. In this chapter, Abraham is 99 years old. 24 years have passed since God promised him a son, a nation, a land, and blessing. In that time, Abraham has made his own attempts of at bringing about God's promises. First, he thought, well, maybe it's going to be my hired steward. I have no other children. Eleazar, he must be the one to inherit this. Then, there was his attempt to use his wife Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, to bear him a son. But none of these were the will of God. Nothing had come at all that resembled anything like the promises Yahweh had made to him. Verse 1 chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am a mighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you. And the king shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. In their generations. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you. And your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan is of everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God here has declared again His covenant to Abram. Then in verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep My covenants, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me, you, and your descendants after you. Now wake up if you've fallen asleep as we've been going through all this Genesis. Here we go. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. As it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off From his people, he has broken my covenant. What is important? Abraham simply needs to obey in this covenant act to place himself as having acknowledged and received it. Verse 23, we're going to jump there. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said. Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. What does Abraham do after this seismic conversation and declaration from God? He obeys him to the 10th degree, completely, in every way. Now, we're going to launch up from that bloody scene several hundred years later to Moses and his family. They're on their way to Egypt. They're camped there. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone, a flint, and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, Yahweh, let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. God had already, as I mentioned five times, mentioned to Moses over and over again that the deliverance of Israel will be the fulfillment of What? his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses knew what that covenant included. He had lived his first three months as a baby in his own Jewish family's home where he would certainly have been circumcised. But for some reason, he has failed to obediently maintain God's sign of circumcision with his own son. Such negligent disobedience to the sign of the covenant would not be tolerated by God. The man who was to lead God's people to the fulfillment of that covenant could never be so careless with the demands of that covenant. What tipped off Moses' wife Zipporah to the danger closing in on Moses? We don't know. Some speculate that perhaps he was in some sort of a, a seizure of some kind or some sort of an attack that was obvious. We, we do not know. But she knew and she took action and her action saved her husband's life and allowed the Exodus mission to proceed with him as leader. And then we move on. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. We've got Moses at a point where he is believing enough to begin. The Exodus team has formed. We have Moses and Aaron together. And then in verse 29, the mission begins. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs and the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction... Then they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is a great start. In fact, the mission has begun flawlessly. Aaron received the words from Moses. Moses spoke them to the people. Then Moses demonstrated the authority of God through the signs that God had given him. And In response, the people believed God just as Yahweh told Moses they would. And what did they do? They bowed and worshipped Yahweh. What a close to that chapter. In conclusion, Ryken gave this word. He said, The real issue was not that he, Moses, lacked the stature to persuade Pharaoh or that he was ignorant of God's name or that the Israelites would not believe him or that he was a poor public speaker. God had answered all of those objections. End quote. The real issue that separated Moses from glorifying Yahweh was his refusal to believe God and obey God. The same two requirements may stand in the way of each of us living a life that will truly glorify God in the Midian or the Egypt that he has placed us in. I think many of you, many of you, want to make your life count for Yahweh. It's just a matter of minutes that you have to do that. Maybe ever several thousand minutes, but it's really minutes, maybe hours, that God has given you to live here to His glory, and He has given you opportunity. If we will believe and obey, perhaps some of you are hesitant to step out in the direction God has made clear to you. Don't be. He has promised to be with you. He has promised to supply whatever is needed for the situation, not so that you will be lifted up, but so God will be lifted up. His requirements are not complex. To live to the glory of God, we must pursue faith and obedience. First, first of all, you must become His child. He loves His children, but some of you are not His children. He loves His children. If you desire to be His child, you must repent. That means you turn away from pursuing the sinful life, the sinful pleasures. And you turn away from your own independence from God's rule over your life. Often that is the key for so many of us. We do not want to surrender and give Christ lordship. But you must repent and turn to Christ. You must believe in Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, that His death on the cross was the payment for His people's sins. And you must believe Christ's resurrection gives eternal life. Eternal life to those forgiven people and then submit to Him as ruler of your life. If this is true of you, then Yahweh has chosen you. He is the sovereign creator God and He promises to be with you. We are, as the brief verse in Romans says, without excuse. You cannot conjure up for yourself faith and obedience. You cannot offer them to God as though you had planted, nurtured, watered and caused them to exist. Ultimately, they must come from God Himself. So what do we do? We must regularly plead for God to plant and grow these in our life. We must pursue them through the scriptures and prayer and fellowship with God's people in his local church. First John 3, verse 23. And I'd search to try to understand where is God's command about belief? I've always heard it's an offer. First John three twenty three says, and this is his commandment. This is his commandment that you believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. You must believe. You must follow. Faith. Faith. As Moses learned, and we have seen this morning, actually every bit of life is about God and not our skills, our abilities, our temperaments, our intelligence, or anything else about us. He may have gifted us, but those are His gifts to us for His purpose. May we be used by him. And then in obedience, John fourteen twenty three says, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he, we will come to him and make our home with him. 1 John 5 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I'd like to read in closing 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. May that be our our motto, that we may glory in the Lord. May the world see him through us. Believe and obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you took an insignificant Nobody off the backside of a mountain, Father. And and you made him to be a leader of men. Many of us are like Moses in the first condition. We're nobodies. We're maybe obscure, Father. But I pray that you would use us. That you would use us to your glory. That you would use us to make known Christ to those we carpool with or those we work beside or those we teach, those who we raise in our family, in our home, our spouses, to our extended family, Lord, that you will be made known through us. But Lord, help us to walk in obedience. Please break down the excuses that I and my brothers and sisters use to keep us from walking in obedience to you. Grant us deep, stirring faith. Thank you for the example of Moses. Lord, we love you. Please use us this week for glory in this city. In your name, amen.